First reading is taken from Ezekiel, chapter 18, verses 30 to 32. And it's headed, The soul who sins will die. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent! Turn away from all your offences, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offences you have committed, and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. And the second readings, taken from Luke chapter 5, on page 728, verses 27 to 32. The calling of Levi. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good to be here with you, and uh, even crossing the bridge, we don't mind that, as long as it's not too far up the North Shore. I suppose uh, Mark kindly asked me about uh, how God had blessed me in my life, and uh, the blessings are, in fact, innumerable. The, um, but I mentioned particularly the moment, and you see I can date it, uh, between three and four in the afternoon, might have been two or three actually, but whatever it was, in the afternoon of uh, April the 19th, 1959, it was 50 years ago of course, uh, this year, uh, when I as a uh, um, teenage boy, uh, a church-going teenage boy, but a teenage boy who had never actually made a personal commitment to Jesus, uh, was invited to do so and decided to do so. And I did, along with many, many others, including members of my own family, and made it, made it clear that there was a personal commitment. Uh, in those days, we used to talk about decisions. These were decisions for Christ. And that's a sort of funny way to speak, really, because it's really God who draws you to himself. But as far as we're concerned, we're making a decision. And I think one of the things that, uh, that holds people back spiritually sometimes uh, is that they never come to a point of decision. Uh, they drift. They know about it. They broadly and generally believe. They may even be church, regular churchgoers or irregular churchgoers. They may be people who have watched from a distance. But they've never come to a point of decision. And uh, uh, we need to do that. We need actually ourselves not to drift but to decide. One of the things about life which uh, you know as well as I do is that uh, there are millions and millions of decisions we make during the course of uh, a week and a year, millions of them, trivial decisions. I'm going to clean my teeth now, things like that, as well as much bigger ones, I guess, uh, where I'm going to live, where I'm going to work. 
But basically in life there's only two or three big decisions that need to be made. Uh, even work doesn't matter too much, after all. It doesn't really matter whether you're working in IT or whether you're a, a trash collector or whatever you are. That doesn't matter. What really matters are just two or three big decisions, and one of them is, of course, your decision about Jesus Christ, who he is, and whether you'll commit to him. That, I think, is the big decision of all. And you'll know, too, that uh, one of the best ways of avoiding making a decision is to make millions of other little decisions. When you fill your life with little decisions, it's like a sort of a screen, a smoke screen we put up to prevent us from making the big decision. I do that. If you come and look at my desk, you'll see that I work assiduously at my desk. And anyone looking in can see that I'm working very hard indeed. Except I'm not working on the big things. I'm working on a hundred little things in order to prevent myself having to deal with the big things. Christine, this is just an illustration, darling. It doesn't necessarily follow. It's very tricky. Uh, Okay, I don't want to burst into my study tomorrow and say, look at the big things. <laughs> but that's how we operate. We make millions of small decisions in order to prevent us endlessly, or put it this way, so that we can endlessly defer a big decision. And I'm saying to you today, this passage that we've just read, Luke 5, uh, is about a big decision. And it's a way that God has of speaking to us about a big decision. So let's now pray and ask him, particularly if you have never made that big decision for yourself, that you will help, God will help us to make it. Ready? Dear God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which does not leave us in ignorance and darkness, but gives us the light of the truth. And we pray now that by the power of your word, you would teach us the truth and bring us to know you. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, uh, this passage, um, I'm sorry I didn't get the page number and I'm using a different Bible. Uh, it's Luke 5. Anyone got the page number there? Oh, it's above my head, yes. Everything's above my head. Uh, everything's over my head, as they say, page 728. Uh, good to have it open uh, and, um, and, and to keep an eye on it, make sure that what we're saying is true. This passage has an extraordinary sort of comparison uh, made by Jesus himself between him and a doctor. He says he is more or less, he's like a doctor, a doctor of not so much of the body, and though he's pretty good at healing people's sick bodies, but really a doctor of the soul. Now, let me ask you this question. Do all doctors have the same skills? Well, basically, I guess one of the good things about living in Australia is the answer is basically yes. There's medical schools to which people go and uh, you have to pass certain exams and so forth. Basically, I guess that's true, but only basically is it true. The fact of the matter is that not all doctors have the same skills. Uh, and you can tell this when you go to your GP. Uh, if you say to the GP, you know, oh, you, you, they send you off to a specialist and you say, well, now, who is this specialist you're sending me to? Is the specialist the same one that you would send your husband to with the same disease? She always stops and thinks. And sometimes she changes and says, no, actually, I'd send... Not all doctors have the same skills, you see. They have an interest in who they send their patients to, not just any old specialist. And they would certainly have an interest in who they would go to themselves. No, not all doctors and not all GPs have the same skills. Uh, I, went to, I have a wonderful GP, in my opinion wonderful at least. She makes me feel good about myself. I know she's very skilled. Uh, and the, last year I went to a chap who I didn't know at all. 
I'll never go to him again. Apart from the manner being very brusque, the advice he gave me proved to be quite wrong. Well, I'll never go to him again because not all doctors have the same skills. Now, when Jesus likens himself to a doctor here, he's really saying he's a sort of physician of the soul. He's interested not so much in the body, though he is, of course, interested in the body, but he's not interested for this purpose in the body so much. He's interested in those who are sick of heart, mind and soul. Sick of heart, mind and soul. And that's who he's interested in. Now, there is a particular person that this arises out of, and we know his name. His name was Levi. He was a Jewish uh, person in those days. Uh, we're told, verse 27 of this passage, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. He was a tax collector. That is, he collected tolls on the roads and, uh, and other indirect taxes. Now, some of the tax collectors in those days were collaborators. There was a Roman occupying power in those days in that land, and some people simply collaborated with the Romans and collected taxes on behalf of the Romans. They were not popular. Uh, but this man was not so much a collaborator. He was a more lowly local official. That wasn't his real problem. But he was proverbial. We don't know about this chap, but we can guess. Uh, his type, if I can put it like this, was proverbial for extortion and rapacity with which they treated others, particularly the poor. Now, recently we've, we've lost our tax collectors on the bridge, our toll collectors on the bridge, but just imagine that the toll collectors on the bridge uh, assessed you in accordance with what they thought and kept the traffic standing while they uh, made sure that you gave them what they thought you should pay them. Uh, it was that sort of behaviour which got Levi and his friends a very bad name indeed. They were rich, but they became rich by their exploitation of others, and particularly the poor and defenceless in the community. And therefore, Levi certainly had a bad name, uh, a bad reputation, I mean, and he was certainly had a bad reputation founded upon this bad behaviour a deserved bad reputation. And so therefore, um, the, uh, if, if you look down there at verse 30, when there's a bit of a complaint about Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law belonging to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And that word sinners was a term of abuse uh, to all those who had offended the standards of the Pharisees and, the, and, the, uh, and their disciples. Uh, sinners, the people you wouldn't be seen dead with and you certainly wouldn't be seen eating with, uh, the people you didn't want to mix with. Later on in Luke's Gospel, we come across another one, a woman who was, uh, in our terms, promiscuous, and she was simply called a woman who was a sinner. That's her name, a woman who was a sinner. In other words, she was cut off from the company of respectable people and with good reason. And with good reason. I don't suppose you welcome too many drug, drug uh, um, addicts or particularly people who provide drugs into your home. Uh, I don't suppose you, uh, you welcome such people. I suppose you think of people who provide drugs to others and live off the proceeds of the drug trade. I presume you regard them as being rather beyond the pale. Who wants them? Uh, they, are, they are people who exploit the weaknesses of others. You would have a very negative view of such a person. 
And I have to say it was that sort of negativity which was directed towards Levi and the other tax collectors and sinners in those days. They, there was a sort of fellowship of these outcasts. If you were one of the tax collectors and sinners, you knew each other, and there was a sort of uh, a fellowship of negativity, if you like, a fellowship of outcasts who felt the stigma. And more than that, now today, I guess, if you're a drug trafficker, uh, you don't think too much, perhaps, about your situation with God. But in those days, if the community cast you adrift, if the, if the community said no to you in that way, it was really speaking on God's behalf as well. And so uh, tax collectors and sinners, and the word sinners is the giveaway here, meant that really the Pharisees and the others were not only giving their own verdict on your life, they were also giving the verdict of God on your life. You're an outcast not only from polite society, but you're an outcast from God himself, completely alienated from God uh, and in big trouble with God. Now, uh, I guess, uh, like many of us, your sympathies are automatically engaged with Levi and, uh, and, and the sinners. Uh, and the word Pharisee today, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the word Pharisee is a word of abuse, like our word wowser, perhaps. Uh, the word, if you, want to, if you want to insult someone, you'd call them a Pharisee. Uh, but you have to understand that's not how it was back then. Uh, the Pharisees were greatly admired in the community. Uh, people thought very highly of them indeed as the custodians of the tradition and the moral uh, tradition particularly of their community. The opinion of the Pharisees, the positive opinion was worth having and the negative opinion was certainly something to worry about. And so the opinion of the Pharisees uh, was certainly not the opinion of a despised group but the opinion of the opinion leaders of their own community. And we'd be wrong historically to think of the Pharisees as people who were themselves despised and outcast. Well, how accurate were the Pharisees? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The law there is a reference to God's law. And they were using, and we can use too, the law of God as a sort of diagnostic tool here. Uh, we can say, well, how did Levi match up to God's, it's like you go to the doctor and the doctor has certain diagnostic tools at her disposal. Uh, so too, uh, the law of God, particularly the law as explained to us in the Old Testament, was a sort of stethoscope of spiritual life. And if we apply the law of God to Levi's life, how does he go in fact? The Pharisees thought he was very sick. Well, what about the truth? Well, the law of God says, first of, first of all, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Levi didn't do that. If he'd done that, he wouldn't have been an exploitative tax collector. Now, the law of God says you are to love others as you, as you love yourself. Well, he, wouldn't, uh, he didn't pass that particular test because he clearly didn't love others. He exploited others and abused others and stole from others. Uh, the law of God, if you take the Ten Commandments, for example, the Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet. You shall not lust after, long after, desire that which does not belong to you. Well, of course, uh, that was Levi's whole problem. He had a heart attack. His problem was a heart problem. His problem began in his own personality with a desire for that which wasn't his, 
namely the money of poor people and the possessions and goods of poor people. He trashed the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. His uh, desire for that which belonged to others was fanned by greed. That is the desire to have more than I need, to add houses and lands and possessions. His desire for other people's possessions showed that instead of trusting in God, he trusted in his capacity to add things to his own life. It's not so strange, actually, that the rich are notoriously, not inevitably, but notoriously grasping. That being rich does not make you happy. That in fact, rich people often, when, when they are rich, or even when we are rich, want more. That never is it enough. You always want to move to the next stage of our desires, to have fulfilment. It's uh, notoriously the case that we find ourselves giving excuses when we want to own more and more. But you don't have to be rich to be like that. I think that uh, in the daydreams of many people, uh, the idea of uh, being let loose in, uh, well, as, as Princess Di was in Harrods after hours, remember that? In going to Westfield with $50,000 in your pocket, that would be worth having. Being able to spend all you like, perhaps after hours, with the whole shop open and just you there to spend, would just about be heaven for many people. And you remember that notorious phrase from the 1990s, he who has the most in the end wins. He who has the most in the end wins. It could be a picture of the city we live in. It could be the picture of curability. Uh, we, have a, uh, we, we live in a city... Which, uh, in which, actually, since the 1990s, uh, sec uh, work has taken the place of sex as the most sought-after thing, where people, people endlessly work in order to get. We have a city in which gambling is uh, out of control. And whether it's gambling in, uh, down at uh, the casino or gambling in property or in shares... We have a city in which a few years ago, you may not remember this, but I do, uh, that down at the, uh, the city morgue, some of the workers there were fired because they were going through the bodies, going through the clothes and possessions of the dead in order to steal from them. Do you remember that? Steal shoes. Steal money from dead people. It was called ratting. So whether you're down in the morgue or whether you're in the uh, central business district, we have a city in which people, in their greed, a greed which has received a terrible check in the last 12 months, hasn't it? Uh, in their greed, become ensnared, as Levi was. We are an acquisitive and greedy society, and even our charity is pretty frugal. Well, that's just one thing. You could, you could think of many others. I'm concentrating on the sin of Levi here, but it is, a sin which, uh, it is a sin which we know something about living here in Sydney as we do. We are an acquisitive and greedy society. Is it a sickness? Yes, it is. It's a spiritual sickness, which is more dangerous than a physical sickness. It is like a cancer. It is worse than a cancer and affects all our hearts. According to God's word, it is a sickness and a fatal sickness. In fact, God's word tells us that those who practice greed, those who practice greed are outside the kingdom of God.
In other words, they have no future. They are outcasts like Levi. You see, it's not as though Levi was really basically a nice chap and a good fellow just misunderstood. The Pharisees were right. You've got to understand that. The Pharisees were absolutely right in making him an outcast. The only problem with the Pharisees was that they themselves were also outcasts because although their sins were not the same, they too were sinful people. They too did not obey God and love God with all their heart, soul, strength and mind. They too did not love their neighbours as themselves. They did not care for Levi and his friends. They simply sneered at them and in so doing they condemned themselves. For it's all very well to stand here and accuse all of Sydney of being greedy and so forth. But who's doing the accusations? An innocent person? A good person? A moral person? By no means. A person who also, if you cared to to take the commandments of God as a diagnostic tool and run it over this Pharisee, you would find great sins as well. Because we're all in the same boat. Okay, well that's Levi's disease, and it's a disease we all share in the Bible. It's called sin. Now what about Levi's cure? Well, the middle part of this story here, look at verse 29, is as so often the case in the Bible, it's all about food. I love the Bible. It's got lots and lots of good stuff in it, mainly food. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. So he called in the riffraff from everywhere and they were prepared to come and eat and talk and be with Jesus. More to the point, Jesus was prepared to come and eat and talk and be with them. Jesus went to King's Cross, found the drug dealers and had a party with them. What's happened? What's happened to Levi to make this possible? Well, I'll tell you what happened. He made a decision. He stopped mucking around and he made a decision. Go back to, uh, to the 27th verse, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, I don't know how long it, <laughs> it took Levi to make this decision, but it couldn't have been long. And he got up and left everything. Hey, he left everything. Left his lifestyle. He left his tax booth. He left everything to follow Jesus. That was his decision. And it was a revolutionally life-changing decision. He had responded to the command of Jesus to follow me. Now, Jesus calls this by a special name. Do you see it there? He says uh, right at the end of the story, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And that's the special name for that decision, repentance. He called them to repentance. That is to a new life. That is, to a life by which the greedy or the sexually addicted or the profaner or the liar or the slanderer or the completely respectable person who sneers at others can make a new start. It's not, a new, it's not an easy word, 
The decision of repentance does not come cheap. He left everything and followed Jesus. It arises, first of all, from the recognition that we have a spiritual illness that has alienated us from God. It comes from a recognition in Levi's part that the life of greed is lonely, self-centred, miserable and fatal. Fatal to our well-being. Secondly, it comes from a concrete decision and an action as we deliberately put aside the sins of the past. We take the cause of the offence, the offence against God, whatever it is, you've been locking God out of your life, whatever it is, and we throttle it. Put it aside. Say, no, that's not going to be me any longer. And then third, we make a whole-of-life decision to follow Jesus. That is, from now on, to be a disciple of Jesus. Disciple means one who is taught by Jesus, one who follows Jesus, one who is ruled by Jesus. Repentance, you can have remorse or regret, you see, things of the past. We all have remorse and regret for things that we've done. Oh, we should never have said that, we say. That's not the same thing as repentance. Repentance may include remorse, but repentance involves turning our lives around so that we follow Jesus from now on. All for him, giving all to him, letting him rule our lives. The cure for our sins, the disease of sin, is not reformation, it's forgiveness. It's to be forgiven. And forgiveness through a person, namely Jesus, who takes and reshapes our lives to be what he wants them to be. So the great wonder and grace of it all is not that we're wonderfully good and therefore merit forgiveness, but that we're wonderfully bad and yet God forgives us. But then takes us and makes us the sort of people we should be. As Levi left everything to follow Jesus. And hence the extravagance of his response that he threw a banquet for Jesus. What else would you do? He was so pleased. I remember coming home that day on April the 19th, 2009, uh, 1959. I can, see, I can still remember the day. I can still remember the emotions and the, and the sense of the day. It was so wonderful to find Jesus. It was so wonderful that Jesus had found me if I can put it like that. Well, just uh, as we conclude here, please notice that there are people who still remain sick in this story. Uh, Jesus says, verse 31, in a sort of a pretty ironic way, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Well, the Pharisees regarded themselves as healthy. But in fact, their spiritual state was as bad as the tax collectors. So Jesus says to them, it's not the healthy, so-called, who need a doctor, but the sick and he says, I've not come to call righteous people, read self-righteous people, to repentance, uh, but sinners. I've come for those who recognise their true state. So what's this story telling us? That we're all sick. It's asking us, do we recognise how sick we are spiritually? It's saying to us, have we taken action? Australians are great ones for going to the doctor. Well... Many of us are. Some of us know. Although sometimes we put off going because it's so, we don't want to know the truth. 
we certainly avoid this doctor because we're frightened that if we go to him, he'll take our lives over. And the truth of the matter is that's the only terms on which you can come to him successfully. Well, what about you? Levi made a great decision that day and a decision that revolutionised his entire life, a decision in which he found forgiveness with, uh, from God and peace with God from then on. Have you made that decision? You may not be able to put a date and a time to it as I can. In a sense, that doesn't matter. You might have made it years ago and you can't remember when. That doesn't matter. The question is not, did you do it on April the 19th, 1959, but is it true now? Have you made that decision to follow Jesus Christ, to commit yourself to him, to receive forgiveness, to be repentant? I'm going to pray a prayer now, and this prayer is a prayer which invites you to do that. Uh, many of you have prayed this prayer already. You don't need to pray it again. Uh, some of you are not ready to pray it yet. That's okay. Still thinking, but don't let it drift. But for some of you here today, it may be the moment has come when it is time for you to make that decision. Will you use this time, this prayer that I'm going to pray, you pray along in your heart with me now as we address God about you and as they enable you to make this decision for him. Let's pray. Dear God, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve the gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Now, please forgive me and change me. That from now on I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.